If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to the eighth book of the Bible, the book of Ruth. And that's going to be found on page 222 in the Bibles provided in front of you. Page 222, the book of Ruth. This morning we will finish our series called Reversals in Ruth. One way to sum up this book for those of you that are joining us today for the first time is the book of Ruth is headed in a certain direction, a downward direction, a spiraling down into darkness, we said in the first week. So think of it as if each of the events in the book are one further step down, down into a dark pit. And then, at some point, which we've not covered until we get to today, something happens that reverses the story, and then each step is kind of retraced in the opposite direction, and not only brings them back to where they started, but progresses further in the grand story of not just Ruth and Naomi's life, but of the nation of Israel. And so God not only reverses the bad things that happened, he overwhelmingly and generously provides and blesses beyond where they were in the beginning of this story. So that little image of Ruth is one way to view the whole book. It's a reversal. And we've seen several of them so far, from death to life, from being widowed to married, from being empty to full. And today we will consider the reversal of a woman, Naomi, who is very bitter, as we saw at the end of last week. And then she turns to great joy and and delight in the kindness of God. She views God as being bitter toward her, and then she eventually sees that, no, no, God has in fact been very kind to me. And so I want to ask the question, how did all of these reversals happen? That's, that's our aim for this morning's message, is to really put the bow on the end of this sermon series and not just see that there are these different reversals, death to life, widowed to married, empty to full, bitterness to kindness, but today we want to particularly ask, how? How did this happen? What was, when you got to this pot, the, the deep dark pit, what turned the story around? And the answer is found in the middle two chapters, chapters two and three. And strangely enough, this turning point of the story is in self, it's itself its own mirror. We've used that image throughout this sermon series. That chapters 1 and 4 in particular mirror one another as the reversal happens backwards. So it's as if, if you're looking into a mirror at home, and then you're holding a mirror in front of you, that there's like two mirrors going on, that's what the book of Ruth is like. The internal turning point is itself a parallel mirror of chapters 2 and 3. So I'm going to read all of chapters 2 and 3. It's a longer reading, and so to give you a heads up, I want you to notice three movements that mirror each other in chapters 2 and 3. Movement number one, Ruth and Naomi make a plan. They have a conversation and make a plan. That's the first thing you'll see in chapter 2, the first thing you'll see in chapter 3. Second movement, Ruth meets Boaz. In chapter 2, you're going to see, and notice the word, behold, there was Boaz. And you're supposed to be thinking at this point in the story, no way. What is Boaz doing here? Then Boaz is going to talk with Ruth about her taking refuge under the wings of the Lord. And at the end of this meeting, Boaz will give Ruth an abundance of food that she has more than she could imagine. 
the mirror in chapter 3 will have the word, behold, Ruth shows up. And in this part of the story, you're supposed to be thinking, what is Ruth doing here? And they then have a conversation, and this time Ruth says, I would like you, Boaz, to be the one who covers me with your wings. And then they have another conversation, and as that goes on, Boaz ends that meeting with giving Ruth food more than she could imagine. Movement number three. Ruth and Naomi at the end of chapter two and at the end of chapter three are talking together. Ruth is reporting how things went and they are rejoicing together in what God has done for them. Three movements. Ruth and Naomi make plans. Ruth and Boaz meet. Ruth and Naomi rejoice. See if you can see those movements. Follow along as I read chapters two and three. This is a gripping story. This will be the best illustrative story I tell you all day. So here it is. Follow along. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband, of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please, let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why? Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. For the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come, come here and eat. Eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. 
and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. So she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Oh, blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she took her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, this man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to, her, said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Then, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore. And anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I, Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you were wearing and hold it out. So she held it out, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, You 
he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to my mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how this matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. What a story, huh? I think this book is awesome. I'm sad that it is ending and that we are concluding this study. But I hope you're able to see the mirror images and the, the parallel parts of chapters 2 and 3. I wonder if some of you maybe weren't able to see them or were a little distracted or you're wondering, um, what is going on in chapter 3? Am I the only one that's wondering, if my daughter in 10, 15 years comes to me and says, Dad, I've got a plan for marrying this young man, and here's what it is, and recounts Ruth, I'm going to say, uh, no. Like, what's going on here? What is Naomi thinking coming up with this plan? And so I think when we read this story, we sometimes miss its beauty because we're distracted by what's going on at the beginning of chapter 3. And if you're not puzzled by it, well, then maybe you're not reading it very carefully because there is strangeness in chapter 3. And if you are puzzled, you're not alone. So what I want to do is hopefully clear that up first. And I think that these chapters have some depth to them, if you want to say layers to them. And I've been trying to picture in my mind what, what way to best visually image what I'm talking about. And I don't know if this is, will be helpful, but we'll give it a shot anyway. I want you to imagine these two chapters like an apple. An apple that has its outer skin layer. So far, so good? The real apple, though, is not the thin layer of skin, the hardened layer. It's the actual apple itself, the second layer in, past the skin. And then there's a, a third layer, right? The core with all the seeds and the part that you throw away you don't eat. Except weird people like me just eat the whole thing, seeds and all. Now, most of us don't like the core, and so I imagined, for the sake of illustration, let's imagine that somebody came up with a very clever idea. You all know how like with cupcakes or donuts, you can like take the center out and then inject it with jelly or frosting or some sort of wonderful sweet. What if somebody decided, hey, from the top of the apple, I'm gonna pull out the center and I'm going to inject it with caramel. Maybe people have done this, I've just never had it. But that sounds like a great idea, right? Imagine that's your third layer. And so in this morning's message, I'd like us to look at those three layers of this chapter, these two chapters, that is. First, the outer surface level that's a bit hardened, not actually the real apple. Then let's get to the real thing. What's behind the surface? What's really going on in this story? And then finally to the third and sweet layer, the caramel gooey center that's warm and should hopefully warm all of our hearts as we finally get there. That's my plan for this morning. I hope the visual isn't too quirky and weird and helps so let's start first by peeling back the skin of the surface of this passage. Each layer will have one key word to help you remember. The first key word for the skin layer is worthy. In this passage, we see these words, worthy, two times. And when we see them, I think they're key. Now, as we peel back the hardened layer of skin in chapters 2 and 3, there's a variety of ways we can do that. First, we can start looking at the original languages. This was not written in English. This was written in Hebrew. So we could learn Hebrew and study them, and we could look at especially chapter 3 and study the Hebrew language and come to the conclusion that, in fact, 
something weird's going on. Studying the original language does not help move away the skin and the outer hard surface. In fact, it, it gets more explicit or graphic. I could point out four words, but for the sake of family-friendly audience, I will not. But there's four different phrases in the Hebrew that could be used with kind of illicit behavior going on. And so if we study the Hebrew, it doesn't really help us be like, oh, well, there, there was something else going on. Let's just clear that away and get to what's really happening. That, that doesn't help. So then maybe we could do something else. Maybe we could uh, study the cultural and Jewish background. Sometimes that helps. Like, okay, there's something else going on here. It's not illicit and racy and suggestive. Maybe, maybe that'll help. So let's do that. If we study the background, we might start to realize that, well, Ruth's a Moabite woman, and what do we know about Moabite women? Uh, they're known to lead men into immoral behaviors. In fact, we remembered last week that in Genesis chapter 19, there's a story about how Moab started, and it was when a woman took a man who was older than her in her family, had a little bit too much to drink, and then sleeps with him so she gets pregnant. Well, that kind of sounds familiar to our story, doesn't it? Here's a young woman with a man in her general extended family, through marriage, that is. He has maybe a little too much to drink, and then they lie down together. Okay, that doesn't help. Then we start doing more digging, and we find out, oh, what, what about this threshing floor? What's going on? I don't even know what a threshing floor is. How many of you? Oh, yeah, what's a threshing floor? I didn't know. I don't, I'm not a farmer. But a threshing floor was the area that after your harvest is done, you would take the crops, wheat, barley, as we see in this passage, and you would start to clean off all the non-wheat, all of the uh, chaff that, that you end up throwing away and burning away. You're, you're kind of cleaning off the harvest, and you do it on the threshing floor, and you beat things down, and then you throw it up in the air, and so there's this spot where you would do this. Now remember, you're in the Middle East. This is Bethlehem. Sam and Erica, when we were traveling to uh, Dubai a couple weeks ago, they said that when they grew up in the Middle East, they would actually sleep outside uh, on top of the roofs because it's warm and it gets a little cooler at night. So these people sleeping on the threshing floor was to protect their harvest. And it was a bunch of men, kind of blue-collar worker type guys, hanging around. They're, they're excited because the, the harvest was good and plentiful and they're now looking at all their stuff and so they're celebrating together and they have a lot to drink and the threshing floor was known for lots of prostitution. Oh, yeah, everything we look at this story continues to give us suggestive hints and clues. And so what do we do with this? What do we do with this outer layer of hardened skin that took this beautiful story and kind of inserted in this really racy, suggestive scene? Well, whether we read this in English or Hebrew, looking at cultural context or original languages, it just looks bad. Like there's a big bruise on our apple. Would you all say? And I don't know how many times you've read Ruth, but every time I've read it, I've been wondering, I just, I don't know what else to say other than it just looks shady. Okay, God uses people that are not perfect. But on further review, I don't think there's a bruise on our apple. I'm convinced that this story is not telling us about any illicit or moral activity. In fact, right on the surface, I'll give you three clues that tell us, no, no, the author of this story is intentionally trying to tell you that in the days of the judges, 
In the days where everybody did what was right in their own eyes. In the days of the judges. Now, just parentheses, read Judges 19 later today. It will not be an encouraging chapter, but it will give you the context of what I mean about illicit behaviors of men out in the fields and during this time period. In that sort of day, there are two exemplary people that even when temptation gets the most strong, when it seems like all the circumstances would believe, oh, I know what's going on here. They don't do what you think they would do. I think that's what's going on in the story. Here's three clues as to why. Number one, what is our key word for layer number one? What is it? Worthy. What do we find in chapter two, verse one, about the description of Boaz? He is a worthy man. And this is a compound word, two Hebrew words that are summarized in this one English word, worthy. It means that he has great might, he has power, he has wealth, influence. The word very literally means champion or warrior. It means he has strength. So what does this warrior strong man do with his strength and might? Beats people? Hurts people? No, the whole story shows his great generosity and kindness and using his wealth and influence to help other people. All of what we know about Boaz throughout chapter 2 is this man seems to be a godly man who loves the Lord. Did you notice in verse 4 the way he greets the people working in his fields? May Yahweh bless you. And they respond back, and may he bless you. I think it's a little hint, yet again, showing this is a worthy, upright man who loves God and worships Yahweh. Look at verse 14 in chapter 2. It tells us that he is inviting Ruth to sit at his table. He is not using his power and strength to abuse women. He is using them to protect and bring them in and care for her. How, how incredibly generous is Boaz to Ruth? You see him giving her not just a seat at his table, which if you know anything about Middle Eastern context, that's a huge deal. It's like saying, I welcome you into my family. We're going to be friends now. We're going to be partners. You have a meal together with someone. It's not just like, hey, let's have lunch together like we have today. You would only do that with your closest of friends and family. So Boaz is showing immense generosity and grace. In verses 15 and 16, you see the way that he is protecting Ruth. Did you catch that? Young men, you better not touch her. That's how he's using his wealth and strength and influence. You better not lay a hand on her, and you better not rebuke her. Boaz is a godly man all through this in chapter 2. If it's paralleling chapter 3, we don't have, oh, all of a sudden a misjudgment. I don't think that that reads very well in this story, and part of it is because of clue number two. In clue number two, the instructions we have of Naomi are vague, but she is confident in the character of Boaz and says, he will tell you what to do. Naomi's instructions, I think, as you read them, are not about, hey, you know, we want to make this deal work with Boaz. You should take a good bath. Do a little makeover, get a little makeup on, get your nice dress, be a little seductive. I think a lot of people read chapter 3 that way. That's not what's going on. This language parallels very closely with the language that we find in First and Second Samuel. Do you remember when David is mourning over the loss of his son, the son that he had through Bathsheba? If you don't remember, one of the things you'll know is that once that mourning was done, he took a bath, he anointed himself with oil, and he put on a cloak. 
In other words, most commentators seem to suggest that what's happening in Naomi's instructions is not, hey, be seductive. It's show Boaz that you're done mourning the loss of your husband. Show Boaz that you are actually available to be married and do that externally. That's clue number two. Clue number three is that Boaz calls Ruth. What kind of woman? What's our key word? A worthy woman. And it's one of the same words used in chapter 2, verse 1. One of the very interesting things about this language of worthy woman is it's the same phrase used in Proverbs chapter 31. For those of you familiar with the Bibles, you will know that Proverbs 31 is the virtuous, excellent wife and woman. The woman par excellence. Every husband's and man's dream when you read Proverbs 31. Every woman's nightmare as they read that and get very insecure about themselves. Feel convicted and wonder, oh, I don't match up. Read it sometime. Proverbs 31, verses 10 to the end of the chapter is the virtuous woman of wisdom. Now listen to this. That passage begins this way. An excellent, or same word, worthy wife who can find She is far more precious than jewels. Many women have done excellent or worthy, but you, woman, you surpass them all. The reason why this is interesting is because Proverbs 31 in the Jewish Bible is the very last chapter of the book of Proverbs. The next book in the Jewish Bible is Ruth. Do you think that maybe the Jews did this intentionally? That when the canon was being put together, when they formed their Bible, they were thinking, Proverbs 31, the worthy woman. Oh, who's a good illustration of a worthy woman? Not an illicit, seductive, sleazy, temptress, you know? Ruth. Ruth is a worthy woman. The book of Ruth is commending Ruth's character to us, not telling us that she is this lady in the night. There is no explicit mention that they actually did anything that you might suggest. So then what do we make of it? I think we make that the author is telling you that when every situation would make you think that these two people would do what you think they do, they did the opposite. They were worthy men and women, worthy of character. Character counts. These clues, I think, help me see that this author is a skillfully crafted storyteller and telling us, that these people, they're solid. They're solid from the inside out, externally and internally. There's no bruise on our apple. And I think even though this is not the core of our apple, this is not the main point of our story, does this not have dripping illustrations and applications for us? Do you and I not live in a world not unlike the days of the judges, where people do what is right in their own eyes? where promiscuity runs rampant and everyone says, let me just do whatever I want with my body and do not tell me that I should do anything else. I bet there's a lot of us that are in this room today that believe the lie that because God in his sovereignty allowed us to be in a tempting situation, well, then I might as well just go ahead and sin because, you know, if God's sovereign, he wouldn't have put me in this situation to begin with and it's just right there. And, you know, it's the threshing floor It's just what you do on the threshing floor, so I should just go ahead and do it. That, my friends, is a lie. God does not tempt anyone to sin ever. Read James chapter 1. Instead, we hear that temptations are common to men in the Bible, 
and that God faithfully provides a way of escape no matter how tempting those situations can be. And can you imagine a much more tempting situation than what Ruth and Boaz are in? That's the very point of the story with all the suggestive language and metaphors and situations. I want to make this point in our message. Even though this is not the core point, we too should be a people who swim against the constant current of the immorality in our world. But in order for us to do that, we must remember that this does not happen from the outside in. It happens from the inside out. In order for us to have the kind of character that we see from Ruth and Boaz, we must allow God to peel back our outer layers and go deep inside of our hearts by the power of his spirit. Are you open today to allowing God's spirit to invade all the deep crevices of your heart? Or is your Christianity Is your religion mostly external and surface level? The Christianity of the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, is about people who have true hearts of character, like Ruth and Boaz, who've been changed from the inside out. My hope and prayer is that as we dive deeper into the layers of this text, that you allow God to go deeper into the layers of your heart. So that's layer number one. We've peeled back this, what appears on the surface, to be a rough exterior, but in fact, it provides nourishment, like the fiber of apple skin. Layer number two. Key word here is wings. Wings. In summary, what's really going on in these chapters is Ruth is meeting Boaz. Behold, Boaz appears from Bethlehem. Go figure, the sovereign God of the universe has so ordained that Ruth stumbles upon Boaz's field, the one of only two relatives she could possibly marry as a kinsman redeemer, and that this man is not just any ordinary man, he is a worthy, generous, loving, kind, great man. And so the the center of this story, in terms of the next layer in, the, 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 the apple is... Boaz and Ruth meeting together and eventually getting married. The proposal, that's what's happening even on those weird interactions in chapter 3. And the reason I think we should see this is these parallel phrases used in chapters 2 and 3, wings. So in chapter 2, you see in verses 11 and 12, look over and notice, Boaz gives Ruth a blessing, and he says, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and come to the people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So as we saw, wings was one of the key ideas that parallels itself in this story. But what does it mean? What does it mean to have God be our refuge and hide under his wings. Well, it's an image of protection and warmth, used of like a mother hen protecting her chicks underneath of her wings. So imagine baby little chicks and mother hen keeping them warm, holding them close, and saying, I will protect you and guard you from the elements of the world and the dangerous things that you're not ready for. I will provide warmth and care. So in chapter 2, Boaz is using this language, a common phrase used throughout the Old Testament to say the God of Israel is going to hold you close to his heart. He's going to provide protection and warmth and be a place of refuge for you. So when you jump over to chapter 3 and see its parallel, 
you notice that Ruth uses Boaz's words, his blessing to her, and says, no, I want you to be my mother hen, essentially. Now, this is not a pickup line, by the way. We're not supposed to learn from Ruth how to date or get married or do proposals, as I mentioned earlier. That, that is not the point of the story. That's like, we've got an apple and you're looking for an orange. Get that in Song of Solomon, not Ruth. Okay, this, this would be a very strange way to go about dating and proposal, at least in our culture. One thing we do know in their culture is that it would have been a common phrase for them to talk about getting married the way Ruth does. So if you go to Ruth chapter 3, and you notice what Ruth says when she appears. She says, I, verse 9, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Almost everybody seems to agree when you look at this in its cultural context that this is a marriage proposal. And I don't know at this moment whether or not that is in fact a norm that the women would have asked. I'm assuming not. But the point here is that what's really going on is a marriage proposal. That's the point. A widowed, poor, Moabite, foreign woman is asking a wealthy, well-respected leader, a worthy man, a mighty man, for his hand in marriage. And by doing so, she is asking him to be a redeemer, to leave his family of origin and come to her side of the family, take on her name, not his. Now, Boaz had a choice. He was not obligated by Levitical law or Old Testament obligations to, in fact, take up this proposal offer. He could have said no. But the story goes that he says yes. He says yes with a free choice and says, yes, I will leave my mother and father. It's the same language that we find in Genesis 2, by the way. It talks about the first marriage when a man will leave his father and his mother. I will do that. I will leave my inheritance rights and my home. I will come and take on your family. This was costly to him. It was a free choice, but it was not a free choice. It was a costly choice. It cost him financially. It very likely could have cost him socially. But he still said yes. You see, my friends, when we peel back the layer of the just external surface, we have much more than a story about two very virtuous people. We have a story about love, biblical love. Because one day, another Boaz would come along in Bethlehem. He would be a worthy man with not just good character, but perfect character. He never once sinned or gave in, even when temptation was right in his face. He never once had a lustful thought or coveting desire Friends, can you imagine a person like this? All the time. I think almost every week you hear somebody say, well, nobody's perfect. True? Well, nobody's perfect. That's not true. There was someone who was. There was somebody who had such character, far above everyone else. No ordinary man. A man who is fully man and fully God had all the wealth that he could ever dream of, all the power and strength, mighty much beyond Boaz. This greater Boaz had the best family situation that you could ever dream. And just like Boaz, this man freely chose to say yes to get married to a poor, widowed, foreign bride. And just like 
Naomi says at the end of chapter 3, verse 18, this greater Boaz will not rest until he settles the matter of his marriage. Except one key difference. This greater Boaz that we're talking about, he did not wait for his bride to come to him. He came and left the throne of his father's kingdom to pursue, pursue her. This greater Boaz, if you haven't figured out, is Jesus. His name means Yahweh saves. For he, in fact, is the ultimate kinsman redeemer who came at a great cost of himself and purchased and redeemed the entire world by giving up his life, by dying on a cross and paying for all of our sins. But the story of Jesus is not a love story that ends like a Greek tragedy or Romeo and Juliet where two lovers die. Oh, Jesus dies for the world. What great love. No, the story of love before us is a story of resurrection from dead, of reversals from death to life, from widowed to married. We, in fact, as a whole world, were widowed and poor and destitute and impoverished. But God died for us on the cross to pay for the penalty, to redeem us. And therefore, we could be married to him for all of eternity. And not just us individually, but us cosmically. Heaven and earth is getting married. God wants to bring heaven inside of us through the power of his Holy Spirit. He wants us to live as changed people in a world that is doing whatever is right in their own eyes. And he wants to provide a way of escape from the bitter temptations of this world by providing a sweeter and more excellent alternative, namely himself. So how does he do this? How does this happen? And the answer is found when you finally get to the sweet, gooey core of our apple. Our final key word is kindness. The real heart of the book of Ruth, all of it, not just our two chapters in the middle of it. The real heart of Ruth is how God uses Ruth to take a bitter woman, Naomi, reverse all of her life circumstances, but also change her very heart and view of God. Remember with me, at the end of chapter 1, if you look over at the end of chapter 1, you will remember that we ended last week by seeing Naomi was a bitter woman. In verse 20 and 21, she says, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? What is her view, not just of her situation, but her view of God? He has bitterly dealt with me. But we just read in chapter 2, verse 20, that she is praising God for his kindness. Read it again. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. What happened that led her from saying, The Lord is so bitterly dealing with me to praise God. Wow, he has dealt so kindly with us. Something changed. Something changed not just in her circumstances. Something changed in her heart. And she's praising God for his kindness. The answer is not just the kindness of Ruth, but that is part of the answer. The turning point of this story is Ruth saying to Naomi, I will be faithful to you to the point of death. The turning point of this story is Ruth and Naomi coming back and Ruth meeting Boaz. Without Ruth, 
without Boaz. Naomi's life stays probably in its bitter spiral down, down, down. But in God's providence, he provides a person named Ruth. And we see in chapter 3 the way Ruth is called kind. See that again, the way Boaz talks to Ruth. Chapter 3, verse 10. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. Boaz says that Ruth was hesed. That's the word. Hesed. It's translated kindness. It's the same word you saw from Naomi's lips. May he be blessed for his hesed. This word hesed does not translate very well to kindness. It is such an all-encompassing word that sometimes when you read it in the English Bibles, you'll see loving kindness because kindness does not do justice to this word. It means love. It means kindness. It means faithfulness. It means loyalty, all wrapped up in one word. So loving kindness, faithfulness, loyalty, that just doesn't translate very well, so you just pick one of them and say, uh, we'll go with love or loving kindness. Do you see, Ruth had hesed toward Naomi. But Naomi interprets for all of us that it was ultimately the sovereign hand of God and his hesed, his loving kindness, faithfulness, and loyalty toward her that changed everything. The book of Ruth, the core of it, the gooey, warm center that is so sweet to your soul is that God is in fact kind, hesed. He is not like all of the other gods and religions of the world and the nations. He is a God full of grace and love and mercy. Our Old Testament scripture reading this morning that Carrie read for us from Exodus chapter 34, it is the most quoted passage by Old Testament authors. The Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, hesed. Twice in that passage, you would have read the word hesed, and then again, hesed. The double repeating is showing the underscoring and the emphasis. This is how I want to reveal myself to you, Moses. I am a God who is not like all the other gods. I am a God full of generosity and benevolence, kind of like Boaz. Faithful and committed to his people, kind of like Ruth. So, you, my friend, you should trust this God. Peel back the layers of your heart and allow him to come in deep inside of your heart. Know that he is loving and kind and faithful and loyal. So many times you and I sin and choose the wrong path because we're convinced our ways are better and how foolish we are. Our ways are not better. You cannot improve upon this kind and loving God. So what do we see? As we dive deeper and deeper into the very core of the book of Ruth, it's quite simple. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in hesed and faithfulness, keeping his hesed for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but by no means will clear the guilty. That, my friends, is what the book of Ruth is all about. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks now for this word. The last four weeks, we've been able to slowly work our way through Ruth, and we're thankful 
that at its very core, at its center, what we see is a God of Hesed love and kindness and faithfulness. We thank you that we can see these character traits in both Boaz and Ruth. That it is, in fact, your will and purpose for us that we can become more and more like you and reflect this kindness, this hesed. So I pray, Lord, that we would be all the more aware of your plan in the scriptures to change us from the inside out, to change us on the external surface through the internal change of our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would allow us to come in, allow you to come into our hearts and do this work that you have planned for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, do you all remember in chapter 2 where Ruth is diligently, diligently working out in Boaz's field and mealtime comes? Boaz invites Ruth to join him at the table and says, eat my bread. And drink my wine. Well, the greater Boaz, Jesus Christ, gives all of us a similar invitation. He says, come, come sit at my table. And in all the connotations that that means in the Jewish world, it means for us today. He is inviting you to a close, personal relationship. He says, I want to protect you. I want to take you under my wings. I want you to be my close friend and family member. God is inviting you now through the bread and the cup that's about to pass. And as the ushers come forward, as we sing this next song, I want to encourage you to remain seated. I want you to ask yourself, do you know this God? Is this the view of God that you have? Or is he, is he the bitter God that you see earlier in Naomi's life? Or do you see, no, no, no. This sovereign God is full of love and kindness and faithfulness. And he is worthy of my trust. And I have put my trust in him. And that is most clearly displayed by his hesed love on the cross. We're going to remember that. By taking the bread and taking the cup, they're on top of each other, so there's two cups on top. Grab both if you'd like to participate. If you're not a Christian and you don't believe the things that have just been explained to you about the greater Boaz, Jesus Christ, dying for you with his great love, then my friend, just sing this next song or listen to it, observe what we're doing, and ask yourself, why not? And consider taking up at some point in your life the invitation to come sit at Jesus' table and be his friend, be his family. We're going to do that now as we sing this next song. We'll hold the bread and cup until we're all done singing this next song and take it together.